Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I thought of Biggie as an archetype, as sort of a king figure. Because you're saying you're ugly, you're big, black, and ugly, but you should look impeccable. When you hear Jay say, sing ain't lie, I done came through the block and everything that's fly, of course, he's, he's quoting big. It was going to be life after death, to death do us part, born again. We had three albums lined up. 26 years ago, we tragically lost one of the greatest music artists that ever lived. In the sphere of hip-hop, Christopher Wallace, a.k.a. the Notorious B.I.G., is revered as one of the greatest of all time writer, rapper, and songwriters. A GOAT. His final body of work was the impeccable double album, Life After Death, a succession of infectious hit records and impossibly poignant rhymes that soared from certified diamond to iconic. 2022 marked the year that Life After Death turned 25, as well as the year that our dear friend Big Papa would have been 50 years old. I'm Angie Martinez, the voice of New York, and I spent five consecutive nights speaking with those who were closest to Biggie during the final 18 months of his life, in and out of the studio. The result is an eight-episode visual podcast fit for a king. Welcome to season one of Iconic Records. There's no album that can be deemed classic without a supreme first track. Life After Death is a perfect example. Somebody's Gotta Die is a masterclass on cinematic storytelling. The album's initial track was only preceded by its author's imaging, commandeered by world-renowned photographers like Michael Levine and Baron Claiborne. On episode three of Iconic Records, we speak with both visual artists on the portraits attached to B.I.G.'s legacy. Then the brilliance of Somebody's Gotta Die gets broken down by Mike B and the song's producer, Nasheem Merrick. Nasheem shares a story that's never been told before, one that not even Big could have made up. Baron Claiborne, come on down. <laughs> Look at your fly hat. What's up, sir? Thank Good you. to How see you. you. Yeah, you man, doing? come on in. <laughs> this crown we didn't put just here because you're here. This crown has been here the whole time. Oh, yeah? Yeah, what does that crown? It is because of me, though. What does that crown uh, represent to you? Uh, I, I don't know. I would say nobility. Like, I thought of Biggie as an archetype, as sort of a king figure, you know? So that's where I got the symbol. But also, it's like, you know, always seeing like Basquiat's crown when I first moved to New York, you know? I was like, oh, I should put it on someone's head. And that's kind of, but I thought that that's how Biggie looked to me, like a king, like a big fat king. A big fat king. <laughs> he was to me. He was like an archetype. 
-hmm. Like, he didn't know what the other people didn't know, but I always kind of knew he had like a sort of gravity to him, you know, even at such a young age, which is very unusual for somebody to be. He had sort of like old man energy. Tell me about um, the first time you met him. I shot him in 92 with the white suit and the cane where he looks like he's in space. Because I got that idea from uh, Kingpin and Spider-Man. So I, I saw him and then I asked, you know, at the time, you know, everybody was wearing that um, tan Kuji sweatsuit. Mm-hmm. So that's what they wanted me to shoot him in. But I was like, I, if, I'm not interested if I have to shoot him in that. So I told them, could they get him a white suit? Because you're saying you're ugly, you're big, black and ugly, but you should look impeccable. So, yeah, they found Groovy Lou. He made the suit. I made the backdrop. It was like it was like an Irving Penn backdrop where it was like a V and he goes and into the the center. And I just thought, in some ways, I I love that photo just as much as the crown photo, in a way, because it's very beautiful, and he looks really elegant, and he looks great. Like, he looks... I mean, I just think of beauty. He looks beautiful. Even though it's a dude, whatever, he looks beautiful. It's a beautiful photo. So I think he liked that a lot, so that's when they came to me for the second one. I kind of like people who have a picture that they can look back at and... They're still proud of it 20 years later, 30 years later, where I try to give uh, my work sort of a sense of timelessness, yeah. you know? Tell me the history of The Crown. Well, The Crown, I, I, the day I was, gonna, I was doing the shoot, I was there. There used to be a store called Gordon's Novelties on Broadway before you got to 23rd Street. Mm-hmm. So basically, I had made the decision to do them as a king. So I went into the store. And I was looking at all the different crowns. They had different kinds. You know, the one that looks, you know, the one that looks like popcorn, you know, Jiffy Pop, but it's red. <laughs> that one. Then the like, different ones. And I chose, the one I chose, I chose because it was the most common. And also, I thought the power of Biggie would make no one comment on the crown, which is true because to this day, no one has ever commented on the fact that it's just a, sil- a novelty crown. You know, but in the photo, nobody thinks of that at all because his presence takes that away. Mm-hmm. This is one of my favorite pictures of Yeah, me. a lot of people like the smiling one. Was this a natural smile or was this like No, a- I was just joking with him, talking with him about stuff he laughed. I took Because it was back then, getting a rapper smiling <laughs> was almost That's impossible. Why it was so special. Right, and none of them ever really, they didn't want to smile. That was the thing. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I released this one like a long time afterwards just so people could see that you know biggie smile he had a you know he was a human being he wasn't just a thing he was a person but then i learned the quirks after shooting him for the first time and it's funny because both shoots were probably like three hours total both what were the uh, quirks is that what you said yeah like i mean there was of course he had a lazy eye which i told him i would never publish a photo where it was shown really yeah and i and i haven't other than that he, he was pretty easy. And that's what I mean when I say he had old man energy. He had, any, like, he was calm. Like, he wasn't running around like a lot of people. But the craziest thing that I remember from the first shoot is he ordered hot wings. And he ordered 40 of them. So I assumed that they were for him and his, the, he was with a few people. <laughs> so before we shot, dude. <laughs> He ate all 40 of them. (laughs) And then he drank a two liter Coke in a sip. Like at once. Oh my God. Which is funny because I do remember that. I thought that was crazy. (laughs) But not the wings were crazy too. But the fact that he could drink a two liter Coke, I was in shock. 
Oh, big. You know, even though it's not a big deal, but, you know, I was like, wow, that's crazy. He just drank a two-liter Coke and 840 hot wings. I feel like you should have caught an image of that. Dude, nah. He, I, I, nah, I only, I try to catch people with their nobility. I try not to catch people. I don't, the, the, the rest of the stuff doesn't, I just want people to look, I would say, for lack of a better word, like noble. That's more of my thing. Like, when they see my photo later, it's, it's them. It's a... a a part of them that maybe even at the time that they didn't see, but I did. I just care about beauty, dignity, nobility. Those are the things that I want in my photos for the most part. Wasn't there a story about Puff trying to license these? Well, Puffy has, I've sued Puffy like three or four times. You've sued him? But, yeah, but he always, I mean, I've sued like all kinds of people, but yeah, no, he uses them, but now he, he's cool. He uses it for different things. He likes yeah. the photo. So, I, his excuse was he thought he owned it, which I thought was funny, but when the, the first three times I sued them. But it just gives me money. <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm not, you know, it doesn't but bother me. But I can me. see why he thought. I mean, if you paid for the shoot. But he didn't pay boy. for the shoot. Oh. No, he didn't pay for the shoot. He was just there. Got it. But I was shooting it for someone else, not, not him. He just came by because I guess, because Biggie was leaving going to the airport, so I yeah. guess he wanted to talk to him before he left and stuff. <laughs> well, it was for who? Who were the photos for? It, the reason I did it for Rob Marriott, he asked me to do it because he was working at Rap Pages, and that's who it was originally for. Oh, for Rap yeah. Pages. But then I, it's been syndicated since, but yeah, I did it for Rob, asked me to do it. So then we see these pictures, they're like iconic. We well, see them sure. all the time. Yeah. And then, so you weren't getting paid for them. Is that what happens? No, I always get paid for them. It's so, syndicated. Uh, People use it without permission. I usually end up suing them, and they end up paying me. But there are some bootlegs I can't find. You know, I don't know who it is. Like when I walk around New York and a dude has them on a table and he's like, I'm not bothered. I don't bother people like that. Because also you have to take it with a grain of salt because those are the people who made the photo what it is, you know? So I'm not coming down on everybody because they made a representation. It's just corporations. And buff. Yeah, that's different. Plus you have money to sue for. <laughs> You know, I don't want to take anybody's kids' money out of there. Like, I'm not, I won't do that. What was, um, what was Big's opinions? Was he like, a, like, would he stay and look at the photos? No, or? he would just joke. Well, at the time, you used to do Polaroids. So, you know, back then it was analog. Why wasn't he using digital? So, you know, I would just do the Polaroids. He'd see them. He never really said much, you know. He pretty much just did what I said. I would tell him the idea. Like, with the white suit, I mean, who doesn't want to be in a white suit with a hat with a cane, like... There's nothing to object to, <laughs> though people have objected to things like that on suits. But he looked beautiful. How was he? I mean, after that, he wore suits all the time. Was that he, the first time? You that was the suit? first time. Yeah, wow. and that's the thing. It was like you have to sometimes you don't see it. Somebody has to show it to you. For you know? sure. Do the photos have like a different um, meaning to you when somebody passes? Oh, yeah, sure. I feel especially when they pass young, if you're old, it's a little different. But 24, that's nothing. Like, I moved to New York when I was 23, so I would have died the year later, you know, and I hadn't done shit, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's sad, but, you know, like they say, the, the what is it, the brightest candle bur burns the shortest? Or I mean, he has a huge presence, and, you know, life is, you know, death is part of life. It's all life, really. So the fact that he will be remembered, it like sort of like many icons, like, you know, Bruce Lee, Marilyn Monroe, he joins that American sort of icon, the pantheon of icons. I think it's really beautiful. I'm glad that it's my photo that he's remembered that way. I'm proud of it. And also not just the photos. You can say you 
put him in a suit. It's a big deal. It's a big oh, part sure. of his I took legacy. That, sunglasses that, off. That's a big part a of the Frank shit, White, <laughs> the Frank no, White cool. transition. But I think that's yeah, because to me, like you know, I'm a black dude, so sometimes, you know, everybody shows black dudes as rough, and you know, all this shit all the time. But they don't. This is another side of black dudes. There's nerds. There's black dudes who are super intelligent. Black. Dudes. It runs the whole gamut. And the thing with me was with the photos, I kind of wanted people to see other sides of black men. I'm a black man, so I actually do care what people think of them visually because I'm a photographer, cinematographer. And, you know, I'm proud to be a black man. Like, I'm, pr you know, it's like an exclusive club that nobody wants to belong to, but I'm still <laughs> proud to be one. Tell me about the day you shot with the crown. Okay, so the day I shot it and I came up with the king idea. Puffy didn't like the idea because he said that Biggie would look like the Burger King. <laughs> you know, which is funny. That's why I always charge him triple when he gets the photo from That's me. That's why you sued him. Yeah. Well, no, I sue any. If you use the thing without my permission, I'll sue you. I'll, I don't care. But yeah, I always kept it. I kept that. I kept the backdrop. And like the Polaroids and so because I, I just did. I just I just kept them because I don't know. I thought maybe one day. I don't know. I just kept them. I just I don't know why. I don't. I mean I can't imagine just throwing the crown away after the photo shoot or anything. <laughs> A lot of people used to ask me to take their photo in the crown, but I would always refuse, and then people would get really mad. And where is the crown now? It well, was it was bought at Sotheby's. You know they auctioned. They had an auction. Their first hip hop auction like two Decembers ago, and they asked me, they had asked me over the years and other people. So I said, well, if you have a hip hop auction, then I'll do it. So the time, I thought the time was right. So I did it because I want, uh, because for me, it's not gonna go to the, they're not gonna take it from me and do that. So I wanted to go somebody who could get it where it belongs, like in the Smithsonian, the Brooklyn Museum, somewhere where it actually belongs, mm -hmm. you know? That's my wish. For the crown. And who bought it at Sotheby's? I can't tell you. That's the problem. You know, though. I know. They don't know I know, though. But I do know. But I can't say. You can. No, you can't. Uh, okay. <laughs> You're trying to mess up my shit with Sotheby's. <laughs> I don't want no problems with you. I don't want you to sue me. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I can't sue you <laughs> no, for that. I'm just kidding. But no, I can't tell you. Okay, okay. It not, Is it please. somebody we would be happy who had it? Mm, I doubt it. <laughs> okay. But you'll, you know who it is. Really? And you'll also be surprised. It's been said that the photo shoot for the Life After Death album cover took place on a winter day that was as cold and eerie as the final photo. It's time we pay respect to the shooter. Michael Levine gave us this uh, legendary classic artwork on the cover of Life After Death that I have been staring at for every interview uh, that we've done so far, and it really is something special i got I, I wonder what you feel like when you see it now it's very powerful image and i i you know i just always get taken back to that day uh because mm -hmm. there it was just such a really kind of amazing moment when we had that hearse and then there was a smoke machine and there was the uh, just the the atmosphere was so i don't know uh alive and it was a you know it was a big you know the whole shoot was uh two days so there was a it was a a lot of stuff going on but that particular moment i i remember very well um i actually have an image that was on the inside of that package that i use as like 
the picture on my wall, like <laughs> the oh, one wow. that I love. Uh, yeah, actually, I have it right here. I'm let me see. see. Yeah, can we see? <laughs> uh, uh, let oh, me see if I can get that in there. there. Like this is. one. Wow. This is Beautiful. the the graveyard shot that, uh, that wow. I, I look at every day, and he, and um, so you know, it's it, one of the only shoots I have out of any of the shoots and I've done thousands uh, on my wall. So, wow. Uh, Where was that particular one shot? Is in the same, is it in a studio? Cause that looks like a real graveyard. That's a real. No, it was all in a real graveyard. We shot at Cypress Hill in Queens. What was the direction? Like when you first get the job and they, they're explaining what they want, what, what was it that you were meant to capture that day? I have a creative style that I think that they were just, hiring me to explore, you know, so to do my thing really basically. And there wasn't like a manifesto really. It was basically, you know, we knew the name of the album. Right. <laughs> we knew that we were going to have a hearse and we wanted to look cool. So we tried a lot of different things. So we had like kind of an old fashioned look in a sense. And I was shooting a lot of black and white film. And I think you just go into a graveyard and you have ambiance immediately especially a good one i mean the story about that image it's not so easy to do to just make it look good you it's a you really have to hustle you have to know where to put the camera where to put your subject and you're dealing with a thousand things at once you know you got you know the the whole crews riding around in their suvs everybody's stoned <laughs> out of their mind you know it's like it's like <laughs> not stoned out of their mind <laughs> That's funny. What was Biggs? What was Biggs temperament? Was he what, what can you tell me about his energy that day? Well, I mean, the thing that I loved about Big was that he's so laid back and so chill and friendly that I was I, mean, I was really taken aback, actually, because the first time I met him, you know, he was kind of an imposing figure and he looks a little, I don't know, tough and, and mean. But then <laughs> He's big. And then when you say hello, he's like, oh, hey, man, how's it going? Like, he's just so he has like a really kind of relaxed voice and presence. We were in the graveyard and I had we were trying to find another location. And I had like been running around uh, in my I had a Ford Explorer at the time. And I had seen this location with the the. Um, unknown soldiers you know the tombstones of the unknown soldiers up on the hill and i was like puppy let's go check this out i think this might be a good spot to do a shot and he was like all right well let's go look and so biggie and i and biggie got in the back seat puppy was in the front seat of my explorer and we drove we were driving uh, up to the the location and in my cd was elvis which was random. I didn't even listen to Elvis that much, really, to be honest. But Elvis was playing, and Puffy was like, what the hell is this? Why are you playing Elvis? This is... And Biggie just was like, hey, man, Elvis is cool. I love Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> so that was Aww. kind of the vibe of the whole thing. Like, Puffy was like, this isn't right. And Biggie was always like, hey, that's cool. <laughs> that was kind that's of the a, vibe. That's a perfect description of the, the yin and the yang of those two. Do you remember your last conversation with Big, by any chance? Mm -hmm. We didn't have a lot of conversations, to be honest. We were working, so he mm -hmm. had to. We shot. If you really look at that shoot, there's 
25 locations. I mean, we were all over the place, lots of outfits. And uh, so we were constantly moving. And it was a hustle. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't really time to chit-chat. Uh, and I don't think that we had a lot to talk about, really, except the images. Like, you know, yeah. making sure the clothes were right. Making sure that you want the hat off, the hat on. Changing, put the glasses on, put the glasses off. It was very, it was work. It was one of the biggest shoots I'd done, really. Yeah. And, you know, he was serious. I think he was, you know, he was into it. But he also, you know, he had a bad knee. He was limping. It, it was hard on him. It was, it was a long day. Mm. Long two days. You know, it was tense. There was, it was definitely tense. Uh, everything, every detail was, was an issue, especially with Puff. Like there was a button that was not right. And he was yelling at, at Groovy to get this button fixed on the suit. Like we're in a, standing in a graveyard and, you know, a bunch of tombstones everywhere and smoke machine and, and, and the button really, you know, to be honest, didn't matter that much because it's a little tiny thing on a, in a big setting, but you know, that's the kind of detail that Puff was paying attention to. Mm. What can you say about what this image, I mean, having you know, create this image and shoot this image, where do you think it lands and just like the history of album covers and uh, well, I mean, you know, obviously you're we're all here because it's one of the greatest albums of all, all time. Uh, and so it's an honor to be on it, to have worked on it. Uh, I had just, you know, uh, it is tragic to what, what happened. And, you know, the timing was so prophetic and so, you know, upsetting. Um, but, you know. I had just been, I, I was a grunge guy. I was hanging out with Kurt Cobain and then he died. So it was just like this thing that was going on. I was like, uh, it's all was really dramatic back in the nineties. And for me, and I think for all of us at that time, I mean, that was our time. We're now mm-hmm. old, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you have a cla- and you have classic work to, to be proud of. The photography attached to Big's legacy aided in the growth of his star, as well as anticipation for his sophomore album. But when that first track hit, it was the MC who became the visual artist, stylist Mike B. All classic albums have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Absolutely. And so Absolutely. Yeah. Because from the time he starts off with, with, you know, end, ending off, well, starting off with, the end of suicidal thoughts, right? Because now he's setting you up from ready to die and then it was suicidal thoughts was the death part. But now he's showing you life after death now. So when he goes into somebody's got to die, yo, that story right there (laughs) is fucking crazy. (laughs) It's amazing. Because he's like, he's like, yo, I'm sitting in the crib dreaming about Lear Jets and Coops, the way salt shoops, right? Is what I'm thinking he's saying. He's, and then he's like, oops, I'm interrupted by the doorbell. It's 3.52. Then, he, then he's hitting you with some slick shit from warning. Who the hell is this? I gets up quick, cocks my shit, then proceeds to walk in. Then you hear the dogs barking in the background. That whole movie right there is so crazy because then he's like, when he peeps through the peephole, he sees his man sing 
from the 16th floor, who used to sling from the 16th floor. Then he's like, I guess deeper. Then I see the blood up on his sneaker. Then he's like thinking to himself, yo, like, bro, bro, is you is you coming to chill with me or are you coming to hit me like right now? Like, what's going on? Yeah. Later on, they they go to the block. And this, this is where the wordplay and the vocabulary is so ill because he's like, you know, when he pulls up on the block, he's like, there's Jason with his faculty standing with his back to me. You know what I'm saying? Like, who says faculty? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? What the fuck? Like, you no either one. saying, yo, no yo, there's Jason with his boys or there's Jason with his homies or his crew or a gang gang or whatever. But he's like, yo, there's Jason with his faculty staring, standing with his back to me. I start to get a funny feeling. Then he's like, then when he moves, the cleverness of it, though, is when he's like, you know, he's moving on Jason and he's like, he squeezes shit six shots, but Jason turns around holding his daughter, right? But if you listen to the song, he never shot the daughter. He, he's telling you that he got so much perfect aim. He hit Jason, but Jason still was holding the baby because you still hear the baby crying. Like, how do you think of that? Like, right. You know and with no pen. With no pen. Like, I'm like, yo, this kid is crazy. But then it's like, you listen to other songs where he's like, you know, mom crept up, crept, crept up over the casket, screaming bastard. You know what I'm saying? Y'all know who killed him, filled him with the Rugas from the Luke. Like his story, his vision was like the illest. And there's only very few storytellers in this game that I love and I could really get hype off of. That's big, of course, but then you got Coogee Rap. Yeah. You know what I mean? You got Slick Rick, of course, mm -hmm. you know? Um, Scarface. Uh, there's very few. Nas, of course, you know what I'm saying? Nas is crazy. It's the detail, boy. It's the detail, the detail for this and man. The nuance. That's yeah. why you can keep listening over and over to Over that. and over again. Yeah, even now. You know now. what I mean? For those that say they can they only can listen to it for a few days or something like that. No, you cannot. <laughs> you cannot. It's it's it's, you, it's if you listen to it for a few days, you definitely miss some things. Absolutely. You could go back and hear new things all the time. I'm so glad you said that mm -hmm. because it's so funny. When you hear Jay say, um, shit, sing ain't lie. I done came through the block and everything that's fly. You know what I'm saying? But of course, he's he's quoting big. But for a second, I had to really think about it. It wasn't until this last March 9th is when I figured it out that when Big was talking about Sing Ain't Lie, he's talking about his man Sing that used to sling on the 16th floor that came to his crib that day to tell him how C-Rock just got hit up at the Beacon. You understand what I'm saying? <laughs> so I'm like, I'm like, oh, shit. I'm in the crib, I'm in the kitchen, you know, probably making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or something, and I'm like, oh, shoot, Sing was from the 16th floor. <laughs> and I'm, and I'm like, you still putting it together? Yo, I just started putting it together. And of course, maybe, you know, other folks probably put it together then. I don't know if you did. No, I did not. But <laughs> but it it just bugged me out. You know what I'm saying? He's like, sing ain't lie. There's Jason with his back to me, standing with his faculty. When he's telling you the story from the beginning, he's telling you how he finally let Sing into the apartment. Mm. And Sing is telling you how C-Rock just got hit up at the Beacon. And it was just, it was, it's, it's amazing because still to this day, 
I listen to his lyrics and I find something new every time, every time. That is the beauty, and that's why it's still and so And that's important. why it's a classic. And that's why it's a classic. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to make a classic one album, <laughs> two. For your, for your sophomore album. Yeah, yeah, and, But sure. just think, another thing was so crazy is how we speak upon this man, and he only had two albums. Mm. He only had two albums. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, every time I put Life After Death in, it sounds like a brand new like brand new, new music to me. You know what I'm saying? It's crazy. Can you believe that Biggie never heard the final version of Somebody's Gotta Die? Seriously, never heard it. And you don't have to take my word for it. Let the song producer tell it. I do want to know, just going back to Life After Death, the, in, the inception of it, like going into that, at that point in his career, you know, he had just had Ready to Die. He was he was already had this position. Um, I mean, how much was... Like, was there like a, I don't know, a, an understanding within Bad Boy about how important this album is or what the what the goal for this album is? or yeah, Like, we, what were those talks and what was that kind of... Yeah, this was, um, this was going to be the greatest album ever. Rap album ever, you know? That's why we was giving them two. Puff and put the A-list producers on it, you know what I'm saying? Were there meetings? Were there were there like Yeah, there was tell me about that. Definitely with us. Was, Puff brought us in and was like, listen, we're gonna go out to um Trinidad away from all this nonsense for a month and we're gonna record Big's album. And that's what we did. We went out to Trinidad and just concentrated on Big solely out there for a month. Mm. Just the hardest trash we could think of. Um, but he was like, listen, this is gonna be Big's greatest album to date. It's gonna supersede that first album, Ready to Die. Ready to Die was already like four, what, two, three platinum, I think. And he said, he's going all out on this one. It was gonna be Life after death, to death do us part, born again. We had three albums lined up. Wow. For big. Wow. Yeah. Was it competitive? Were you guys all like, yeah? yeah we was, hitmen don't really compete against each other. We try to compete against the world. Mm -hmm. You know, because we mostly we work together. So I'll do a track and I'll bring Stevie in, Puff will bring Stevie in on it, or Puff will come in on my track. You know, so we work collectively. Um, our focus was on body and every other producer out there, you know, coming with shit they don't, they don't, they can't do. Cause we had the team. I know the sessions that I did, I did uh, Somebody Gotta Die. Mm -hmm. Downfall, what's beef, and niggas bleed. And um, I remember niggas bleed. He did everything in his head. Mm -hmm. So he would do like a half a verse. Then he'll go in the studio like an hour, go in the booth an hour later, give us the other half of that verse, and then come back a week later and give us another verse. That's how big operated on songs, all while doing other songs, mm. you know. And I remember during um, Niggas Bleed, um, my man's 
Madge and Money Bags, E Money Bags, which is stretched from the Live Squad's Madge is his brother, and they're from the Live Squad. So they came in out of the blue, sat down with us, and that's how you hear a word to stress. I guess their pussy, da 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 da. Like Big would make up lyrics as things are happening in the studio. Mm-hmm. You know, live action. Yeah, we keep hearing that. That's Let's go through some of the songs. Let's go through Somebody's Gotta Die session. What can you tell us about that? Take us through the... Right after I did Who Shot Ya, I had gave the Big this beat a year before we even started the album. And it was just a loop. It was just a, a loop. How the loop? What was the loop? The loop was from In the Rain from the Delphonics. Give <laughs> okay, I mean, you gotta listen to the song. Yeah, okay, it's okay. the loop. It's yeah. just the loop. It's no drums, no production, no nothing. Just a chopped up loop. And those of you out there, y'all know what I'm talking about. Yeah. It's such a chopped up loop. I gave it to him. That's when I first started producing. I couldn't even call myself a producer yet. And I gave him that on a tape. And it, it was had no EQ. It was grimy, nasty. And he did the whole song in that record because he never heard the original, I mean, the uh, the finished copy. He never heard the drums on it. He never heard none of that. Um, so You he did, did the, those after he passed? Yeah, I did everything after he passed. I put the drums in, the sound effects, everything. everything. All he had, all he ever heard was him in that loop on that record. Wow. And some of the sound effects in the very beginning of the song, but that's it. That's all he ever heard. Wow. I did everything after he died. Mm. And um I can't imagine. I know. How that feels. Airy. Mm-hmm. Cause the song came out like it was designed, like we was together in the studio. It was put together that cohesively, mm-hmm. you know? But you're doing the music on a song called Somebody's Gotta Die for somebody that just passed. Yeah. And you're listening to his voice, I'd imagine, over and over. Yeah, I mean, Downfall was the same way. Mm-hmm. And he actually says, you know, to my daughter, Tiana, I wish you was here. He said, he's talking about his death, you know? When he says, I wish you was with me. Um, yeah. Talk to me about his personality and how he treated the people yeah. around, the people he worked with. Well, treated he, you. Maybe a personal story. Wow. Yeah. So, listen. Me and Big had beef for, for like a few months. I want to say... Life threatening beef, but he didn't like me. Why? In the beginning, Big used to bring chicks to the studio. And um, this one chick he brought from Brooklyn, from around his way, from Bed Star, um, she would always show me love. Like she would always come to the studio and seek me out, say hi to me and whatnot. Big gets married to Faith out of the blue. And um, Shorty steps to me and it's like, yo, I like you. I want to go on a date with you. So we go on a date. One thing leads to another. Boom. 
that's my girl. She's pregnant by me, mm. in fact. So um, Big has a performance at the Q Club in Queens with Craig Mack. My man Harv put it on. All right, so I get a beat from such woman. I go, and you know, back then we using pay phones. <laughs> I'm in the corridor. The change, you got the corridor. Yeah, I got the, I'm in the corridor with the, <laughs> with the, with the stairs are at the payphone, and Big and Delvet walk in and close the door at the stairwell. So I'm like, what up? He say, yo, get off the phone. So Big and say, yo, what's up? What's up with you and Steph? That was her name, Steph. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah, we we good. He's like, yeah, how are you going to do that? I'm like, you're big. You married. So what? Now I'm like, I ain't got nothing to come back with that. <laughs> so I'm thinking him and Delvec, them things got the posture like they was going to, they going to beat me up. And all I'm thinking is, it's going to be awkward on Monday because I got to work with these dudes. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Word up. That's all I could think of. It's like, Monday is going to be an awkward, awkward day after they finish beating me up right here. But that never happens. And um, for, for for like a few months, Big Day didn't even talk to me. And I'm, I, was, I was working at Bad Boy at the time. I was the engineer and whatever. And we be in the studio making records, and this dude wouldn't talk to me. <laughs> and I'm like, how long is this going to go on? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So when, how did you clean that up? Or did he clean it up? Or how did no, that listen, get squashed? Listen, this is how, and this is real, and this meant so much to me to this very moment that I, I never told this story. I never told any of that story to no one. The last day, the last day he was... In the studio, I remember it was him. We was all in a studio together. It was me, D-Dot, Big, Snoop, and Corrupt. So we're in there listening to some of that album, what he has done, and, you know, everybody's This is Ready to, to Die album? No, 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 this is, this a, is Life After life Death. Life After Death. Got it, got it, got it. I'm just trying to get the timing right. Right. Yeah, okay. Life, life After, after death. death. This yeah. is the last day they're in New York. They leave for Cali the next day. Wow. And oh, wow. that night, they leave the next day for Cali. I decide I'm not going with them, right, for reasons. So I said, I'm going to stay back, plus I, want some pro I got some projects I want to get on anyway. And I already have four tracks on the album. I'm doubt I'm getting any more with all these other producers around. Um, so he says, everyone leaves the studio. They go home for the night. And he, he stays back. He's like, yo, Nas, I got to talk to you. He's like, yo, listen, I got to tell you something. You wasn't my man then. But you my man now. He's like, Cause I had lost, we had lost the baby. She had a miscarriage. Mm. I'm sorry. And um, he was like, that baby's lost. It might not have been yours. 
He said, like, I said, he said it again. Listen, I'm telling you this because you're my man right now. You wasn't my man then. And this had happened, like, like I said, like probably six months prior, right? Maybe four months prior, she lost a child. This is recent. He said, yeah, she was cheating on you with my man. And he told me his man's name and shit. And, you know, even though that hurt that she would would have been cheating on me, she would be which I didn't doubt because I was cheating also. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But, um, <laughs> but damn. You almost had me feeling bad for you until you told me that yeah, other Yeah, yeah, well, whatever. <laughs> I was young. I don't need nobody's feeling bad for me. Um, she, uh, he, him telling me that meant a lot more than him, he, him telling me that she cheated on me. Of course, now, our relationship is about to go take a whole nother direction. He's talking about, he's talking to me about Caesar's first single. We got Caesar's first singles to, to, to record. I said, I need you on his album. He's like, I need you on the Mafia album. He's like, I need you to start working on my next album. Mm. And then he was like, and the commission. So when I come back, we, we got some work to do. And that's the last conversation. And I told him, and I told him, the last thing I told him was, yo, Big, be careful out there, I said, because um, you know how we do. We, we, don't go, we don't go nowhere where the shit is not settled. He was like, nah, I'm good. Don't worry about that. I'll be back. That's the last time I talked to him. That's the last conversation I had with Big. Wow. Thank God you had some kind of closure to that whole... It's almost like he knew, though. Mm. It's like, why would he pick that night to tell me that? You know what I'm saying? To tell me how he felt about me to close that chapter... You know what I'm saying? It's almost like I doubt I doubt it. Maybe he has some feeling, but I'm glad, like you said, there was closure to that. Cause he never came back from that trip. And that made me feel much more at peace. Mm. You know, just living. Mm. He gave you that. He gave me that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you and I have a classic connection to a Biggie song. Absolutely. Biggie will make you go buy a car. Like them raps, them raps will make you go outside, <laughs> go get some money, buy a car, go spend some money on a woman. They always wanted a dude to be entertainment, a fat dude to be funnier. You know what I'm saying? They want to see you as the fat boys. And when Big came, this shit was real. This shit was serious. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.